we switch gears to the sermon, and for that too we should pray. Lord, be with us as we come before your word. We ask you to be our instructor, and we pray that you would speak to us. We hardly need pray so, because in fact you have promised that when your word is proclaimed, that your spirit moves in our midst and goes forth in power. So we have ears, make them uh, attuned to do your will. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. On page four of your handout, there is um, uh, an outline, and I'm just wanting to make sure everybody has a uh, copy, access to one between at least the two of them. I think we only made 25 copies, which is a little bit fewer than normal. Might be a chance to share with somebody, and if not, um, having your scripture nearby will also be, will also be good. Jesus has finished talking to us in his speeches. And he knows that his time is near. And within a matter of a very few days, in fact, in a matter of hours, he will be hanging on a cross, crying out in agony, and dying. And Matthew wants us to know that Jesus knew from the beginning that he was going to do this. And that this was a matter of his timing. In fact, one of the things that we learned last week was that Jesus planned that this would happen during the Passover feast for the symbolism which Passover holds for Jewish people to this day. And even though the conspirators against him were planning for it not to happen in Passover, lo and behold, no surprise, it happens in Passover. And so too today, we see as we change gears a little bit to kind of come to an every, what seems to be an everyday kind of day in the life of um, a community of faith, um, we see too that God's sovereignty prevails. And there are lessons to be learned from this story of a day in the life of the disciples. As we know, it's Passover time. Now, normally, a Passover would be held in Jerusalem, which it is. And normally it would be held with one's own bio fam, mom, dad, kids, uncles, aunts, grandkids. But here Jesus is having his Passover with his adopted family. You might remember back in chapter 12, Jesus declared that his true mother and father and brother and sister were those who did what he commanded, were those who did as he constructed. And so here Jesus is, with his adopted family, which consists of his 12 disciples. The 12 disciples, of course, symbolize Israel. And Jesus is quite intentionally gathering around his 12 disciples in the same way that Moses gathered around 12 pillars at the foot of Mount Sinai in Exodus chapter 24 to institute the Old Covenant. And we'll say a little bit more as time goes on, because Jesus is picking up on that old covenant, and there are things that we can learn about what Jesus is doing here. Well, that may sound kind of highfalutin and, um, and um, maybe a little historic and boring, so let's see if we can bring it down to earth. It's like a Sunday, and our passage begins by getting ready for church. If you were brought up in a church home, you know that uh, mom and dad getting the kids ready for church can be um, an exercise in pandemonium and patience. Uh, 
there were five children in my family, four sibs, my mom and dad. And back in those days, in the 60s, you had to have your shoes shined. You had to have your Sunday suit on. You had to have your shirt and your tie tied. I can remember getting my dad to help me learn how to tie my tie. And the last thing we did out the door after we had our weekly bath on Saturday night, I was trying to think, what, did we only bath once a week? Anyway, on Saturday night, we had a bath. So on Sunday morning, we weren't too dirty. We had our shoes shined. And the last thing was the kids lined up before we went out the door into the car and mom had a jar of what was called dippity doo. And she had a big comb and it was this jello-like goop that she would comb our hair with and it would be instantly wired shut. So we looked prim and proper as we went to church. Getting ready for church can be the least godly hour in any family's life. And it's a little ironic that there you are at church and you had an argument in the car because it's just been such a, a disaster bringing the kids and getting them all ready and showing up on time and looking prim and proper and everything else. So here Jesus' disciples know it's time for the annual celebration of Passover. And we're going to have it in Jerusalem. In fact, we're required to have it in Jerusalem. And so they say, where would you like us to prepare for you to eat the Passover? And here Jesus shows himself to be somebody who's committed <laughs> to the practice of weekly church, if you will. This was a yearly Passover. But I think we can sometimes be tempted to think that Jesus was kind of a hippie-like free spirit and he kind of went with the flow and he did church stuff when he wanted to and he didn't do church stuff when he didn't want to. Jesus was a righteous observer of the Jewish law and he understood himself even to exceed the pattern of the most righteous Jews who were around. And so he said in response, yes, I have things ready. I want to have a special meal with you. Make your way to the city and you'll find so-and-so and say to him, the teacher says, and this is unique to Matthew, that time is near. My time is near. Here Jesus shows again that he's fully aware and is fully in control of his own destiny. And he's going to get crucified and he's going to allow it to happen. And in the meantime, he wants to do the Passover with his disciples. And then we read in verse 19, and the disciples did as Jesus instructed them and they prepared for the Passover. Now those lines in verse 19 might sound like kind of a common throwaway line, but actually they are the words that are used at the end of Exodus chapter 24, when Moses has finished uh, organizing um, the Passover and organizing um, a covenant meal that he is going to have with his disciples. And it comes after a set of instructions and before they celebrate a covenant meal, which would involve the giving of blood and the shedding of blood, and it would be followed by a meal that would include bread and wine. So Jesus is consciously reenacting the Passover, but he's also adapting it. If you want, Jesus isn't just taking his family to church. He's inventing church as he goes. He's willfully adapting Jewish practice to his own unique understanding of what Jewish practice involved. And as we've read time after time, Jesus was interpreting the Old Testament. And Matthew, as Jesus' scribe, 
is with Jesus bringing out treasures, both old and new. The old is there, but there's a new twist to them. So there they are at church, as it were, and they're having a meal, their Passover meal, which was loaded with symbolism. The Passover, as you recall, was a time when the Israelites celebrated their uh, redemption from slavery in Egypt. God set them free. He helped them escape from slavery in Egypt, and he brought them out, and he made a people of his own. And so the Israelites and the Jews to this day, every um, spring, celebrate the Passover. And they have a lamb that is killed, and they roast the lamb, and they eat it. And they recall that on the original Passover, there was blood that was placed on the lintels, or on the, on the, um, the doorposts and on the lintel. And when the angel of death passed over their house and saw the blood that had been spread, he passed over them and spared their lives. My friends, if you are a follower of Jesus and you celebrate the Lord's Supper, you take part in a weekly family ritual that reminds us that where your sins are concerned, where your weaknesses and your ills are concerned, if you're trusting in Jesus, he literally has got you covered by his blood. But that's getting ourselves ahead of ourselves a little bit. Let's look a little bit more closely at verses 20 to 25. And we see that the next thing that happens after they get ready for church on Sunday, as it were, was they get challenged at church. Nice meal. Things are going very well. Everybody is jolly and happy. And Jesus drops a bombshell in verse 22, in verse 21, when he says, truly, I say to you that one of you will betray me. I hadn't noticed until earlier this week that Jesus could very easily have said, uh, the guy over there is going to betray me. Um, he identifies him as the one who dips his hand in a bowl of bitter herbs, but instead Jesus leaves it open. And commentators have observed that he leaves it open probably as a way for us to remember the need that we have to undergo self-examination before we come to the Lord's Supper. In 1 Corinthians chapter 12, Paul talks about the need for us to undergo self-examination before we come to the Lord's table. I don't know whether you've ever had a moment like this, but I think most of us have, when there you are sitting in church, you're minding your own business, you know, you're sort of looking at the watch, or you're, you're, you're doodling on your little thing, as some of us like to do, even though we know we're still paying attention. Um, and then something will just fall like a bombshell, and you think, oh my goodness, the Spirit of God is talking to me. We've already heard from Regina this afternoon about doubt. She went through a period in her life when she doubted. We all go through periods in our life when we doubt, even as we sit here in church at times. That's okay. It's kind of normal, and it's actually appropriate for it to ask, am I a phony here? How real am I? As it were, am I not the one, Lord? It's helpful to self-examine. Because when we do so, we can kind of go through a bit of an inventory and say, am I being real? Am I being true to my faith? And if we're not, we don't give up our faith. We confess our sins and we get straight with the Lord. And then we can carry on. I trust that as you continue to worship Sunday by Sunday, whether it be at this church or another, 
that you undergo self-examination and you allow Jesus to drop a bomb on you from time to time when he will shake you up and say, hey, you, where are you in all of this? It sure shook up the disciples and brought a sobering moment to what was otherwise a joyful occasion. Jesus says in verse 24, after he talks about the one who dipped his hand with me in the bowl, which comes from Psalm 41, which is why I chose Psalm 41 for our psalm today. It's more explicit in Mark's gospel that he, um, my friend in whom I trusted, the one who dipped his hand in the bowl with me is the reference. And of course, Jesus in the gospels uh, omits the one in whom I trusted because Jesus knew better than to trust in Judas. But yet this prophecy is being fulfilled. And Jesus gives us a lesson on divine sovereignty in the midst of it. He says, so it is that the Son of Man proceeds as has been written of him. My friends, everything is going according to God's plan. I've got this. God's got this. Yet woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would be better for that man if he had not been born. No more negative a thing could be said of anyone than to express the wish that they had not been born. Jesus, in effect, is reminding us of what I hope we all know. And that is that we're at liberty to kind of do as we wish. We're at liberty to um, follow God. We're at liberty to rebel against God. But regardless of the choice that we make, God's plan is not thwarted. His purposes continue regardless. And in fact, you can see all the way through the passion narrative where people in the midst of their conniving and in the midst of their scheming end up accomplishing God's will whether they wanted to or not. The question is not whether God's will will be accomplished. The question is whether you're going to participate in it and benefit from it or not, or whether you're going to end up like poor Judas, who ended up hanging himself and who ended up being that man who uh, betrayed Jesus. He says slyly in verse 25, he does not say, um, I am not the one, am I Lord, which the other disciples did. Matthew has us make him different. I am not the one, am I, Rabbi? And Jesus said to him, well, you said everything that needs to be said, my friend. Getting ready for church, getting challenged at church, getting saved at church, getting saved at church. Here in the midst of this Passover meal, Jesus updates what's going on and he adapts the Passover meal to his own circumstances. I think it's helpful just for a minute to look back at Exodus chapter 24 because Jesus is invoking Exodus chapter 24 here. And you'll find that on page uh, nine of your handout. And let me read it. Exodus chapter 24, verses three to 11. Moses went and repeated to the people all the commandments of the Lord and all the rules. And all the people answered with one voice, saying, All the things that the Lord has commanded, we will do. Previous two chapters of this is how you should behave towards someone. This is how you should avoid behaving towards someone. Um, if you do this wrong, you will be punished. They say, we're in. Moses then wrote down all the commands of the Lord. Early in the morning, he set up an altar at the foot of the mountain with 12 pillars for the 12 tribes of Israel. Kind of reminds you of Jesus at table with his 12 disciples, each representing a different tribe of Israel. 
Jesus is consciously following this pattern. He designated some young men among the Israelites, and they offered burnt offerings and sacrificed bulls as offerings of well-being to the Lord. Moses took one part of the blood and put it in the basins, and the other part of the blood he dashed against the altar. This is the making of a contract. It's what some of us saw uh, Regina and um, Evan do a few weeks ago when at their marriage ceremony, after the, the joy of the ceremony, they actually went and they signed on the dotted line. And they said, this is a legal deal. We're not kidding, we're in. We have made a covenant with each other and they signed on the dotted line. And we're glad to have you here again this week, you guys. We'll take as much of you as we can get. We know we're gonna lose you soon to another church, but that's okay. He took the record of the covenant and read it aloud to the people. And they said, all that the Lord has spoken, we will faithfully do. Then Moses took the blood and he dashed it on the people and said, notice the words of Jesus here, very similar. This is the blood of the covenant that the Lord now makes with you concerning all these commands. And then the story goes on to account, recount how actually what followed thereby was Moses going up onto the Mount of Sinai and seeing God. And God decided not to, not to raise out his hand against the Israelites. But in verse 11, we read, they beheld God and they ate and drank. Here Jesus is saying, in effect, friends, my body is the broken lamb. My blood is the lamb that was, whose blood was shed for you. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out. That's a word for a violent death, poured out for many. What's with the blood? It's for the forgiveness of sins. And that's a reminder that when we say all we will do faithfully, Lord, the Lord at the same time knows in my contract, there's going to be provision for you to kind of not be able to fulfill that. I'm going to make a provision for your error to be covered by my blood. And my friends, that's the good news of the gospel. And we have the gospel here in, G in, mini in miniature. When in this Passover context, Jesus is reminding us of what he will soon do for us. <clears throat> Bruner <clears throat> wrote in his commentary about the situation in which we find ourselves riddled with guilt often. He said, our deepest single need is the forgiveness of sins. Our main block in fellowship with God, others, and ourselves is our sin and our consciousness of sin, namely guilt. We feel certain that God must hate our evil thoughts, acts, and words even more than we do, and that consequently, God must have a profound aversion to us. Jesus loves those other people in church because they don't do the rotten things that you do. Only you know how bad you are. There's a little voice inside all of us that says, you're not in. You're too bad for that. Bruner reminds us as he continues, the Lord's Supper continually reminds us, on the contrary, communion must conquer consciousness. Our consciousness of sin is trumped and an outbid consciousness, a consciousness that is no longer the last word in our case, because Jesus's blood over us is the last word about our status with God. We are covered. 
Friends, what a joy it is to know that we have been brought to church here today. We made an effort to get ready. It was either smooth or not so smooth. The more kids you have, the more likely it is not to be smooth. You're being challenged about your sin, and you're being reminded that you need someone to atone for your sin. And the good news is that Jesus did that when he died on the cross. And week by week, as we come to celebrate Holy Communion, we are reminded that Jesus did this for us, knowing that we would fail. Some people even believe, as I do not, that Judas was at that meal. Judas might have been. There's, 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 there's debate about that. The other 12 were there, and remember, they also messed up. They were not conspirators against God. They were well-meaning, but they still messed up, as we saw from the example and as we will see from the example of Simon Peter. My friends, the gospel is good news. Come to church. It's important to Jesus. He's not a maverick. What you're doing now and what we do week by week is in accordance with his will. In fact, he died, not cover your sins individually, but to create a group of people who would meet week by week, including during the week, as we often do in small groups. We are a redeemed community, and we have much to be thankful for. Praise God for the salvation that he brought through the blood of the Lamb that was shed for us on the cross. Amen.